the Gospel according to Mark, the third chapter. Another time he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. Hear this from Paul's letter. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees that his brothers or sisters are in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, be with us in this hour. Crack us open. Help us hear your word in a way maybe we haven't heard it before. Help us see you in a way maybe we haven't seen you before. And God, do something with us that you've never done before. Help us reach out to people we've never reached out before. Help us to love people we didn't think it was possible to love before. God, do something with us in this hour. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Crash helmets. We should be handing out crash helmets. At least that's what Annie Dillard thinks. Annie Dillard, a spiritual author, thinks that churches should be handing out crash helmets instead of bulletins and life preservers instead of hymnals. She writes, It's crazy to wear straw hats to worship. We should be wearing crash helmets, she says. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday. And draw us out to where we can never return. Crash helmets. We should be wearing crash helmets. And why is that? In case Jesus shows up. But we want Jesus to show up, don't we, Pastor? Isn't that why you're up there each week? Is to invite Jesus to come up? Could there be anything more worshipful or more calming or more peaceful than to have Jesus present with us in worship this morning? Why on earth would we need a crash helmet if Jesus were to show up? Well, we'd need a crash helmet because every time Jesus showed up at church, oh, there was trouble. Remember that day he showed up at church and just started throwing the furniture around? Shouting at the top of his lungs, It is written! 
My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. That would have been helpful that day if the people at church were wearing their crash helmets. How about that time Jesus returned home to preach His first sermon? Oh, it started off so nice. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The folks back home were so proud of Him. Isn't that Joseph's boy? They whispered to himself, my boy, my boy used to play with them. Where, where did he learn to preach like that? Oh, but then it all changed. Because he started talking about them. You know, them. The outsiders. The godless Gentiles. And you know what he dared to say about them? Jesus said that God loved them just as much as he loved the nice church folks. Well, the congregation became so furious that they went over and marched Jesus to the edge of the cliff and were ready to throw him off. Now, I know my first sermon here among you wasn't my best sermon, but none of you decided to walk me to the cliff and throw me off the edge. You might have thought about it, but you didn't actually do it. Boy, that would have been another good day for Jesus to have his crash helmet on. But you see, that seems to happen every time Jesus shows up at church. I mean, look at that story we read this morning. This time, Jesus shows up at church and He calls someone to come forward who has a withered hand. And He heals him. He heals him right there in church. Did you catch that? Somewhere between the offering and the doxology, a miracle actually happened. And Sunday morning worship, somebody's life was different because they came to church and Jesus was there. A life was healed, transformed, changed forever because something happened during worship. Imagine that. But look at the congregation. There wasn't a single person who said, Hallelujah! Hallelujah, Jesus! Do that again! Not a single person praised Him for the act that He did. No, the Scripture says instead, they decided it was time to get rid of Him. Right there. The first time Jesus is in real trouble. Want to know why they nailed Him to the cross? Pay attention to this story. It's probably a little different than maybe we have always been taught. You see, when we're bold enough, or maybe crazy enough, to invite Jesus to church? Oh, it might be best if we're wearing crash helmets. But you got to ask, why all the controversy? Why all the conflict? Why is it every time that Jesus shows up in worship, all the nice, well-behaved church folk get so riled up, so agitated, so upset that they would actually kick God's Son out of God's house? Why would they do that? What is going on? Well, they get so exacerbated every time Jesus shows up at church because every time Jesus shows up, He takes exception with the guest list. And every time He takes issue with the guest list, the well-behaved, nice church folks take issue with Jesus for taking issue with the guest list. Because you see, Jesus didn't just take issue with the guest list. He demanded that it be expanded. That it be expanded right there on the spots. 
And this upsets the regulars. Because somebody might be sitting in their pew when they come to church the next Sunday. But upset isn't the right word. The church people don't get upset. They get church rage. Church rage. You've heard of road rage? You ever experienced road rage? This is church rage. What's church rage? The person who commits church rage is a religious person. A religious person whose religion has become their God. South African preacher and prophet Alan Story describes church rage like this. He says it's a person who starts out by loving Christianity more than the truth. And then continues by loving their church more than Christianity, only to end up loving themselves more than they love anybody else. He says there is a danger for religious people. They begin to worship their religion, to pay homage to their rituals and their rules. He says it's the particular idolatry reserved for the religious. Now don't get me wrong. We need ritual and we need rules. They give meaning and order to our lives. They hold and harness our face. But what we must do is constantly hold our religion and our rituals and our rules up to the light and ask, does this bring life or does it bring death? And if it no longer brings life, then we lay it aside for practices that do. See, that's exactly what Jesus did in this story this morning. He shows up on the Sabbath. And make no mistake about it, Jesus knows the rules and the ritual of Sabbath. He knows the rules. He knows the regulations. He knows that well-behaved, nice-going church folks aren't supposed to work on the Sabbath so that He knows that when He performs that healing during that church service, that it would have been absolutely scandalous. And so He says to the churchgoers, "Is keeping the rules today going to bring life or is it going to bring death in this moment jesus makes it plain our religion our rituals our rules are always subservient to relationships every time jesus shows up at church he does something to remind people that god isn't all that interested in religion in fact you'd be hard pressed to find a single incident in all of scripture where god asked someone to start a religion God doesn't ask Abraham to start a religion. He says, no, Abraham, go live in a new special relationship with me. God doesn't ask Moses to start a religion. God says to Moses, Moses, listen, can't you hear my people cry? Go, go and do something about it. And God doesn't ask Jesus to start a religion. God says to Jesus, go and love them like I love them so that they might enjoy life in all of its fullness. Christianity, first and foremost, is a relationship with the living God long before it ever is our religion. Remember that in Jesus' day, most synagogues had a space partitioned by a metal rail. This was the area where they sat, where the outcasts sat, where the widows sat, where the orphans sat, where the sick and the lepers sat, people with withered hands, that's where they sat. 
to enter the main sanctuary, you would have to go through a small, narrow gate in order to get into the sanctuary. They had to be partitioned off. They weren't allowed in the main sanctuary because they weren't considered worthy of being among God's people. You might ask, why was the issue with the withered hand such a big deal? Well, the man with the withered hand was considered defiled because in the ancient Near East, people used their left hand for certain unclean tasks, sanitary functions. Pre-Sharman days. You following me here? And so they used their right hand for public things. Jerry's shaking her head. You didn't need to do that, Pastor. I know. I'm with you. I'm with you. So people use their right hands in public. You'd shake hands with your right hand, never with your left hand. You wouldn't touch anyone or anything with your left hand. So if your hand was withered and it didn't matter which one, you had to use the same hand for sanitation as you would for eating, the same hand for shaking and greeting others, an act that would have made you unclean and thus barred from worship. Imagine this man's predicament. He's born with a condition that will always make him an outsider. There's nothing he will ever be able to do to be fully welcomed into the community. He is born with it. And he will carry it with him always, the status of an outsider. Further, it was believed if you touched someone like that, you yourself would become defiled, and then you too would subsequently have to sit behind the metal rail. You would be barred from worship, and then an understanding of a relationship with God. So notice what Jesus is about to do in worship. He is not only about to touch somebody who is unclean. By touching him, he makes himself unclean. And that's when they went crazy. That's when they headed towards the door. That's when they flew to the side walls. When Jesus touched that man... That's when they decided they needed to get rid of him. I mean, can you picture the scene? Jesus does the unbelievable. Right in the middle of worship, he tells the man to stretch out his hand. To offer up the very thing that has excluded him from community. To reach it out. And as these reaching it out, and people are standing there in shock, he says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And the Scripture said they were silent. A silence so loud it was deafening. Nobody said a word. At this point, the Scripture says Jesus gets mad. Jesus gets angry. He's livid. He's ticked off. He's beside himself. Do you know that the only time in Scripture that we find that Jesus gets angry is when people get excluded from the community of faith? That's the only time he gets angry. You can tell a lot about a person by what makes them mad. When the wings lose, Gene gets mad can tell a lot about a person by what makes them mad. 
So they begin to plot to kill Jesus. You see, that's what happens when people reduce God to the size of their religion. When religious folks so desperately try to contain God within their box of who God is and how God is supposed to be, they will do anything they can in order to defend it, including kill the very spirit of the living God who is in their midst. This story makes it pretty clear. Religion would never heal that man. But a relationship with the living God made known in Jesus Christ can and it did. Friends, that's the promise of this text today. No matter what your withered places are, in the presence of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and the people who claim His name, you can be healed. And let's not kid ourselves here this morning. We all got withered places. Some places withered by the results of what others have done to us. Withered places that fester with resentment and bitterness. Sometimes the withered places are the result of what we have done to others and they ache with guilt and regret. Some of us don't know what causes the withering. We just know it hurts. We just know it hurts. So let me ask, what is your withered hand here this morning? Where do you need healing today? Where do you long for God to call you forward and say, stretch it out so that I can touch it and I could heal it? See, Jesus longed for a place where people, all people could come together and say, this is the place I need healing. Not that they would have to sit behind the rail and hide those places of where they're hurt or wounded or hide it behind the smiley face or the shining smile. Jesus longed for a church where healing could happen. So I know what you're saying. You're saying, preacher, that's some good preaching up there. They taught you real well in that seminary school of yours, didn't they? But do you really believe that? I don't just believe it. I've seen it. I have a friend who's a colleague, uh, United Methodist pastor in Atlanta. He's a seminary professor and he tells the story of a time in the early 90s when the HIV-AIDS epidemic was new and there was all kinds of fear about what touching someone who had contracted that disease would mean and people literally barred each other from family and worship if they had been known to have the disease. And there was a young man dying in an Atlanta hospital in his last weeks in a struggle with AIDS. His mom, frantic to get her son a connection to a priest or to a pastor, called her church, finally told her pastor what was going on with her son. Her pastor went to the hospital, stood outside the door, wouldn't enter the room, and prayed for him from the hallway. 
and then got out of the hospital as quickly as he came. That's when my colleague, who's a seminary professor, mentioned it to his class. One woman, a young woman, rushed to the hospital, went into that room, pulled up a chair, took that young man in her arms and held him and sang to him and prayed to him and read Scripture to him and then sang to him some more and prayed for him some more and read more Scripture to him and she stood at that bedside until he died. When she got back, all of her friends in the class were saying, weren't you scared? She said, I was terrified. She said, I've probably taken 60 showers since then. So why did you do it? She said, I just imagined Jesus got the call. And once I figured out where he would be, I knew where I had to be. Now, if we're to take this scripture, now if we're to take these last five weeks of our journey together and boil it down into two words, if you want to know the heart of hospitality, hook these two words together. Love wins. Love wins. In every situation we encounter in our life, at the end of the day, love wins. Wins. And you're saying, Pastor, you don't know where I've been. Love wins. You don't know the mistakes that I've made. Love wins. You don't know how I've been hurt. Love wins. Love wins. And to be a church where we are growing and looking to how we reach out to new people, those two words said over and over again, love wins. If you boil down the entire essence of the life of Jesus, it's those two words, love wins. Jesus touches the man with the withered hand to show us that love wins. He fed 5,000 with loaves and two fishes to prove that love wins. He calmed the storm, the one on the sea and the one in our hearts to make sure that we knew that love wins wins. He ate with tax collectors and sinners to show us that love wins. He healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the lepers to show us that love wins. He said, whoever is without sin, let them cast the first stone to show us that love wins. And he stood before his accusers who insulted, cursed, mocked, spit, whipped, beat, and then nailed Him to the cross while never once returning a hateful word. In fact, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to show us once and for all that at the end of the day, love wins. Love wins. There you have it. Nothing more, nothing less. Believe it. Trust it. Experience it. But most importantly, I implore us to live it. Love wins. And with that, my friends, find a crash helmet and strap it on. And let's get out of here and do that out there.
Amen? Amen.